This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. wasn't exactly money for nothing, but it certainly was an unexpected windfall. Citibank accidentally paid $900 million of its own money to a group of lenders expecting an interest payment on behalf of Revlon, paying off the loan in full. Some of the lenders returned $400 million, and Citibank took the other investment firms to court. And after a trial, a federal judge ruled that Citibank is out the $500 million because of a 30-year-old legal precedent that essentially says finders keepers. Joining me is Chris Dolmesh, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Did this verdict come as a surprise? It did. So it was not necessarily a complete shock. Some of our own analysts had seen the way the judge was going and sort of thought that he was leaning towards saying that the hedge funds didn't have to give back the money. But it certainly was not locked in stone, and a lot of people thought that Citibank was going to skate by and be able to get the money back, despite some of the problems that they documented during the trial. But the judge felt otherwise. He felt that the creditors had you know, established that they didn't know this was a mistake and that they thought they were actually getting their loans paid off. Go back and explain how this happened, whose fault it was. It happened because of the failure of a system they used at Citibank to send out loan interest payments on a regular basis, usually scheduled interest payments on debt, you know, quarterly interest payments, things like that. The system is called a six-I system, meaning there's three people that check the way that the wire is sent out. But that system failed. There was a mistake made on a digital form that was being filled out, and they didn't realize it at the time. And by the time they realized it the next morning, $900 million had gone out. So it was essentially a failure of a kind of an antiquated system at Citibank that they were already in the process of replacing at the time that it happened. The lenders were locked in a battle with Revlon over its restructuring. They get this unexpected windfall out of the blue, and the judge found that they were correct to conclude that it was money being paid for what they were owed. Well, it's not necessarily the correct in that he established that they had no other knowledge that would have convinced them otherwise until they got a notice from Citibank later in the day that the transfers had been a mistake and asking for the money back. Their testimony was pretty consistent that they didn't know what this was, but their best guess was that they were actually paying off the loans in full. They were engaged in this big restructuring battle with Revlon. Some of the people testified that they weren't sure if this was some sort of move by Revlon to extinguish the debt, to increase leverage, you know, on other lenders and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of uncertainty about what this was. And really what the judge found at the end was that it kind of would have boggled the mind to think that this would have been a mistake of the magnitude that it was by one of the world's largest financial institutions. Tell me about this. The judge said the outcome was surprisingly straightforward, even if it may not seem the fairest result. I mean, he's saying in in terms of the law and the precedents that he followed, which is a 30-year-old New York State case in which 
The money went out the door and it was spent before even the creditor could even get a notice after them. And that was not the case here. But in the end, he just found that there was enough uncertainty about it. They certainly could have thought that this was a legit payoff of the loan, given the contentious history between the parties. Now, that's going to be a big issue on appeal. And there is an interesting footnote in the decision where the judge says there's not really a lot of precedent in case law to establish whether or not the defendants had to show by a preponderance of the evidence that they were not on notice. In other words, they would have had to have proven that they didn't know this was a mistake. But he also said because he can't prove a negative that he didn't have to reach that question. But that might be an area where the appeals court kind of seeks to see if, if it was the burden of the, the defendants to prove that they had no idea that this was a mistake. There was testimony that they at least thought maybe there was a, something wrong happened here. On appeal, they can appeal based on the facts or on the law. So based on the facts, what's the likelihood of a good outcome for Citibank? Pretty slim. I mean, the facts are the facts. And they were pretty established at trial, at least what the judge found. So they'd have to prove that the judge totally got the law wrong and his interpretation of the facts was completely wrong. And that's going to be an uphill battle given the fact that he's pretty much relied on precedent to make his ruling. Like he said, it's not the fairest outcome in the world, but it is pretty straightforward. And there isn't a lot of precedent in this area. You just don't have large financial institutions mistakenly sending almost a billion dollars to creditors that are involved in a contentious dispute every day. So that was kind of the problem with this case. And this case might help clarify the law in a lot of those areas, or it just might make it murkier. As experts have told me, this is a very murky area of the law. You know, these are kind of black swan events. When we see these things happen, it's very interesting and it raises a lot of questions, but it doesn't necessarily make it clear what happens when something like this goes wrong. So I take it that the New York Court of Appeals could change the law if it wanted to, but this is going up to the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. The likelihood that they would be able to overturn the law that way is slim. I mean, certainly the Second Circuit could ask the Court of Appeals a question to certify a question involved in the case, but they wouldn't make the ultimate decision. If Citibank does not win an appeal, Citibank now holds the $500 million loan of Revlon? That is the $900 million or the $500 million question as it is. What happens to that debt? Do they become the de facto owners of the debt? Do they go after Revlon in some way? There's, there's a lot of questions as to what happens with that next. And it's not really clear what the road will be on that. I mean, until... There's an actual judgment in terms of the end of the appeal, and they get a final judgment. At this point, I would say it's status quo because the the money is frozen, and Revlon is still obligated to make regular interest payments on that debt. Looking at the future, if this case remains as it is on the books, will this expose banks that facilitate wire transfers or serve as administrators to more liability? Might there be change in rules because of this? 
I mean, at the very least, you know, Citigroup, even before the, the lawsuit and the trial, was already reviewing its internal controls because of responses from regulators about these kind of problems with the system and other things that had happened. So, you know, on that level, there will certainly probably be changes at Citigroup. They will probably have a full autopsy of what happened here. As to other transfer agents, administrative agents, and banks that serve as administrative agents, it's hard to say. Experts have said, you know, it certainly could increase the cost of doing this kind of business, but this is not a big profit center for banks. These are more services they provide in order to be close to borrowers and, you know, to get better business and to provide a service. And so therefore, you know, it might just lead to some banks who decide they just don't want to do this anymore for the very little amount of money they get out of it. It might just lead to another layer of compliance um, with more lawyers who have to sign off on these things or certainly a more robust and uniform way of making these transfers. Thanks, Chris. That's Chris Dolmesh, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Joining me now is one of the attorneys for the winning investment firms, Adam Abinson, a partner at Quinn Emanuel. Many people were surprised by the judge's ruling. Were you surprised? We were pleased, but not surprised. We had been deep in the law on the case over the course of four months at that point and understood that notwithstanding what some other folks thought, we had a really excellent defense under a long-established doctrine in New York. What do you think the trial turned on? What point in the trial convinced the judge? It's an interesting question, Jim. I don't know that I could point to one moment or one witness. I think it was becoming increasingly clear over the course of the trial that no one in the position of our clients would have thought that this was a mistake by Citibank. They have never made a mistake of that type or on that scale. And under long-established doctrine in New York, it's all under a case called Bank Worms. That, that really was a key and I think ultimately dispositive point. So the average person might look at this and say, if I went to a bank machine and $50 bills just started flying out, I would have to return it. So why shouldn't the hedge funds have to return this windfall? Even the judge said that it might not seem like the fairest result. Well, look, I think that the key difference between, you know, the, the money machine hypothetical and what we have here, it was undisputed that the lenders represented by our clients were actually owed the amounts they received. What they got was to the penny their outstanding principal and accrued interest. So this wasn't, you know, the kind of windfall that the other side wanted to portray it. What it was was a group of lenders receiving exactly what they were owed. And that's an important distinction under New York law, and we think it was a compelling distinction here at trial. Citibank says it's going to appeal. What do you think their chances are on appeal? Look, I hesitate to try and sort of handicap, you know, what arguments Citibank might make. We certainly think the court did an excellent job in its opinion. We think it gave a lot of detail and explanation as to why it was persuaded as it was. Much of its analysis has to do with what the court heard and saw from the witnesses. We're confident in our case. We very much think we're right on the law. And if Citibank, you know, follows through on its plans, we certainly like our chances. There are some legal scholars who are saying that the New York Court of Appeals should change the law. I don't expect that it will change, and I don't see why it should. I think that the decision that we relied on, which is decided, I think, over 30 years ago, has, has now stood the test of time. The Court of Appeals 
decided that decision as it did, in part because it wanted to incentivize banks not to make these kinds of mistakes. And as a lot of the reports are indicating, there haven't been a lot of these kinds of mistakes. So I think that authority in large part has worked. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's a need for a change. I, I wouldn't anticipate a change. Um, and, and we think certainly that the decision here was very much in keeping with what precedent required. What was the highlight of the trial for you? You know, we had we had a really outstanding team working on this case. Um, I was co-counsel at trial with two partners of mine at Quinn Emanuel, um, Ben Feinstone and Bob Lloydman. Both of them are outstanding uh, and working closely with them, working in the trenches with them. Um, that was the highlight of it. Uh, we also had really an excellent team of associates involved. Um, and, and look, it's not, it's never easy to be in trial. It's intense. It's a lot of hours, but it was a, a really fantastic group to be doing it with. I was uh, referring to, for example, if there was a cross-examination or a direct examination that, that stood out to you. We divvied up the witnesses, um, uh, you know, among the group that I mentioned. Um, and, and so for me, the highlights were the ones that I handled. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that's much the, the, the answer that you'd be looking for, but I, I did a couple of the early witnesses who were the, the Citibank folks who were actually involved in, um, uh, you know, making the transfer. Um, and, and that was very much the start of the case, sort of getting feet wet. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that, that was, you know, an exciting opportunity for me to be handling those. And, um, again, we, we, we liked how the evidence was coming in, and, and uh, you know, we felt as if it stayed on a good track from there on. I want to emphasize again what a, what a great team effort this was, um, you know, not only with the partners and associates I worked on, but also our firm, Quinn Emanuel, which, um, you know, it, it takes cases that, uh, that others might think uh, unusual, um, and have, we have a great track record of winning them. And, um, you know, we're proud, certainly, with the results here. Thanks, Adam. That's Adam Abinson of Quinn Emanuel. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.